forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. This podcast is kept alive by the support of its listeners. If you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. In exchange for a small donation a month, you'll get access to materials like bonus episodes, exclusive writings, etc. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. And a heartfelt thank you to everyone who donates and subscribes. The news this week has not been good when it comes to abortion rights. The news for the past couple decades has not been good when it comes to abortion rights. But as several states are doing what they can to pass legislation to block access to abortion services, and as cases move forward, which will probably inevitably overturn Roe v. Wade, Robin Marty's new book, Handbook for Post-Roe America, is, uh, is looking like not just good timing, but maybe an essential purchase for most of us. She takes the premise that Roe v. Wade will disappear, that several states will move to make abortion illegal again, and thinks through what we need to do to guarantee that women have access to safe abortion services outside of the clinic environment and outside of con men and people trying to take advantage of the situation. So we talk about the bad news about where things stand, and about what comes next. I wanted to start out by talking about Georgia and Ohio, because I feel like there's a lot of confusing reportage on um, the recent abortion bills that were uh, passed there. Um, So uh, because I'm obviously I think that there is this sort of tendency of, uh, you know, take this seriously. So we're going to blow everything way out of proportion and then uh, accidentally convince some people that they can't actually get the abortions that they need, um, which is the downside of that. But um, can we just start by like, what's the status of the situation in places like Georgia and Ohio and Kentucky and, and so on? Sure. So right now what we're seeing is what I'm calling it is kind of a approach to make a fail safe fallback plan in case somehow the Supreme Court does not decide to overturn Roe v. Wade. The way I see things happening probably around 2021, because it'll hold off until after the presidential election, is that there will be a bill that will make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And at this point, I believe there's 20 different bills that it could that could or cases that are almost there. So we'll see a case where Roe can be re-looked at and re-evaluated, and either the Supreme Court is going to decide that abortion can go back to being a state-by-state legal issue, and so states can pick and choose whether they want to have abortion legal, illegal, or something in between, or the other thing that could happen is that the Supreme Court will say we are technically going to uphold Roe, in which case abortion has to be legal in every single state in the country. However, 
we will not tell a state what they need to do with abortion access just as long as they do say abortion is always legal. So if you say it's legal, but you have no clinics, um, you're still technically constitutionally offering the right to an abortion. If you say that it's legal, but you've banned abortion at, say, six weeks after the last menstrual period, so two weeks after a late period, and it's impossible for anybody to get in to get care at that point, technically abortion is still legal in your state. It's just it's completely inaccessible. And so these heartbeat bans are in fact a way for all of the states that want to say we are going to make abortion completely illegal when Roe v. Wade is overturned to say, well, if that doesn't happen, we're basically going to do it anyway and nobody can stop us. So we're seeing these spread all the way primarily across the Gulf Coast region. Um, so it's been in Mississippi has it. Um, obviously, Georgia has just passed it. And um Alabama does not have one, but Alabama's trying to go for a straight out ban. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to do a heartbeat ban as a fail safe backup if that doesn't happen. Florida also introduced one. It has not actually made it all the way through the House. I think the House is still working on it. But what we're looking at is so that entire area will be without any sort of legal or slash accessible abortion care. When this happens, um, these are not going into effect right away. They all have a period that in the case of um, Ohio, you have until there was 90 days after the point in which the law was passed in um, uh, Georgia right now. It's until January 1st, 2020. So none of these bills are actually going into effect for a while. And what we will see is that the people that are going to challenge them on the progressive side aren't going to challenge them right away because they are trying to eat up the clock a little bit on these bills to make sure that there is plenty of time for people to have access until we get to the end. Um, so this is why it's so alarming when we see so many different media outlets say, this bill was just signed, abortion is essentially illegal in Georgia. This mm -hmm. bill was just signed, it's essentially illegal in Kentucky. Because no, absolutely nothing has changed on the ground and nothing will change because at this point, there has yet to be a heartbeat ban that has been found to be constitutional in the courts. They have all been blocked so far. Um, and so if things are sort of put back into a state by state level, um, how many states can we sort of estimate will abortion be essentially or entirely inaccessible? Right. At this point, we know that there are at least 12 states where abortion will be completely banned. Um, we have about 10 states where abortion will be completely accessible. So those are states like not obviously we have New York and California. And now there are other states like Vermont and Maine are working on theirs. Illinois already has theirs passed. Minnesota has a constitutional right to an abortion. And then the rest of the states all fall into this sort of we're not entirely sure what's going to happen. Um, some of them, their state constitutions say that there is a right to an abortion, even though their states themselves are really hostile to it. So in those cases, states like oh, um, Iowa is doing this right now. In Kansas, we just saw the state said that there's a state right to an abortion. So these states are now using their legislatures to propose bills where the people in the states get to vote about whether they think there should be a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. That's where things start to get really complicated because then for the most part, whenever abortion is put up to voters, for instance, when we saw personhood laws in Mississippi and over and over and over again in Colorado, voters 
almost always say that they do not think that abortion should be illegal. So it all goes into how the state is going to put it. We've seen in Tennessee that when given the chance to vote on should there be a right to an abortion in the Constitution, it was very, very close. That was Amendment 2, and I think that was two years ago, but it did pass. And so that's why Tennessee no longer has a constitutional right there. And so they're seeing also a heartbeat ban that has been proposed in their state. So these state constitutions are going to be where we see the fight once we get to a point where Roe is officially overturned. Is the left prepared for this fight? Because I feel like up until very recently, if we talked about the possibility of Roe being overturned, um, it was treated as sort of hysterical or an over-exaggeration or something. Um, So I... I guess it is a sort of widespread resistance to these um, these bills, uh, these bans is something prepared to be sort of organized in, in response to it. No, <laughs> <laughs> let's just be straight out blunt. No, yeah. we our problem as a movement on the left is that we have never really been strong state organizers. We've always relied very heavily on numbers rather than strategy as to where our people are. And the best example of this is the fact that before Barack Obama was elected the first time, there was a really concerted effort on the left to try and enact a 50-state strategy. And so we had state groups. We made sure that we were organizing in every single state Um, There was no idea that there was a state that was lost or, hey, you know, if you want better laws, just move to a blue state. Why are you staying in a red state? We organized really well on the ground in 2004 through 2008. But... One of the things that showed how successful it was, was we had obviously the White House, the House and and the Senate all at the same time. And it seemed as if as soon as we had all of those in our control, we're just like, oh, well, everything's fixed. This is great. And then we dismantled all of the different groups that helped pull all of this together because problem solved. We have control of everything. And that was right when the right came in and started developing the Tea Party. And obviously, by 2010, they had moved that into their own state strategy that was extraordinarily effective and took a very low turnout midterm election and moved everything into their favor. And that's the origin of this last fight for abortion rights. It all started in 2010 once they took over all these state governments and said, okay, well, there you go. The left has the federal government, so we're just going to make the federal government meaningless by organizing on the states. And then once we have all these states under our power, we can start chipping away at federal power again. Um, yeah, I the, one of the reasons why your book came as such a relief to me is for most of my life, I've lived in places where abortion was legal, but not necessarily accessible. Um, places like Kansas, where there's four clinics and they're in two cities uh, far away from most of the state uh, and places like Texas. Um, I don't know. It's been very frustrating as an abortion advocate to deal with the um, the the way that it's treated as rhetoric for Democratic candidates who have not necessarily paid any attention to the erosion of accessibility um, to fight back against uh, the the tactics of the of the right for decades. Um, so, how do we talk about um, 
I don't know. Like, how do we, the people that think of abortion access or abortion legality as a sort of abstract thing, um, how do we sort of spur them into uh, practical action? Well, I think one thing that has really happened that has been helpful is the fact that it all went so bad so quickly. Mm -hmm. So just in the last two years, I mean, we've gone from a period where the so-called moderate mainstream pro-life movement has gone from, okay, let's see if we can pass these bans that are just prior to viability to, okay, let's see, now we're just going to go straight for all abortion. And yeah, we are going to throw people in jail who miscarry too. Mm -hmm. Like they have come so far so quickly that it was really a slap in the face to a lot of people who always kind of in the middle believed that Maybe they're not necessarily for this idea of, quote unquote, abortion on demand, but they don't want abortion as birth control either. And they see that there's only these two sides, abortion on demand or abortion as birth control. And they've fallen into this rhetoric. And now they're understanding that it always was rhetoric. And so the idea that abortion would be completely illegal and that people would be punished for these abortions, that's really been a huge wake up call for so many because one of the things that abortion advocates always say is everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. And it's true. Whether it's somebody who is very, is feel, felt very confident about their decision or somebody who wishes that it was not a place that they had been in or in the end regrets the abortion that they had, you still know them. You still love them. And nobody wants that person to go to jail. Nobody wants themselves to go to jail. Nobody wants their child, their daughter, their family member, their best friend. Nobody wants to see anybody imprisoned for this. And I think that's the point that now that it's become clear that that's the end game, that's everybody's realized it's gone too far. And that is really changing the public consciousness to a point where people are willing to re actively become involved in fighting for rights again. Do you think that there are lessons from, uh, let's say, the Irish uh, fight to overturn uh, the ban on abortion there um, that Americans can sort of take at this moment? There are. Um, one of the things, though, that has been that has been really useful about the Irish abortion ban um, and the movement to make abortion legal over there is how very public people have been about um, joining up with those who have been who have been prosecuted for illegal abortions. And I think that's what's going to have to happen in the U.S. is this idea of all advocates in all stripes and all supporters are going to have to work together and be very public with, look, I am ordering pills online. I have publicly done this. I am taking a person to go and get an abortion. Like We have to be very, very open about all of the actions that we're taking um, in order to support the people who are the most vulnerable, who are going to have to do things that are illegal in order to still manage to get their care. Um, one of the things that I read that I thought was absolutely amazing was in um, South Korea, as they are trying to work to get their own abortion ban rescinded, was this idea that a hundred women came out into the public square and I believe two of them took medication abortion and the rest of them took vitamins 
in front of a whole public, the mass of public people. And because the police were unsure as to which ones were the ones who actually took the medication abortion and which ones were the ones who took the vitamins, they couldn't arrest anyone. And that was such a public display, both of this is my right to control my body, but also these are all the people who are going to support Mm -hmm. that. Um, I think that together that managed to really change a lot of people's view as to what should be going on. Um, yeah, so let's let's move to the sort of direct action part of the conversation. Um, the, That's yeah, I, I loved how practical this book was of of just like. Uh, how to think about if you're willing to go to jail, how to think about how to cloak your searches um, if you are searching for abortion medication in places where it's illegal. Um, so I guess it's not it's not really a mystery of uh, why you decided to write this book, but um, why, uh, I guess... Th- I'm asking about the timing, but also, you know, I do feel like this book has been needed for a while, but uh, is there something now that a publisher or whoever was like, yeah, okay, we see, we see the sort of need for it at this moment. Well, there were two things that happened. And one was obviously it came about because of Kennedy's retirement from the court and the idea that Roe would be overturned, but also my publisher themselves published in 1992, I believe, right before Planned Parenthood v. Casey came out, a book by Carol Downer called, um, and now I just, of course, totally blanked on the name, um, A Women's Book of Choices, I think it was called. And it was a book where they actually got into quite a bit of a firestorm over it because it was the first guide that had ever explained how to do a menstrual extraction. And so the idea that I would be putting together a book that was not only just how do you self-manage your own care, and this isn't just like to be clear about, okay, this is how you do medication abortion. It's all different sorts of ways. I don't advocate for any of these, obviously, but I know that when it comes to a point in which abortion is inaccessible, much less illegal, people are going to be looking for information. And so that information needs to be someplace where it can be accessed without a person needing to worry about whether their computer could be looked at and their search engines could be looked up. But also... Putting all of the information together of, okay, this is how a menstrual extraction works. This is how medication abortion works. This is how you could do your own vacuum aspiration if you needed to. Putting it all together doesn't just make all of the information be in one place, but it also offers the caveats that are necessary to be able to compare. Is this something that's too dangerous for me? Is this something I should be doing on my own? Because that's information that people need to consider before they start approaching things. There is no way, basically, whatsoever that a person can do a menstrual extraction Mm -hmm. on themselves. It just can't happen. The people who used to do them would do them every month because it was, in fact, a menstrual extraction. Um, Communities that use them right now, especially trans communities, use them um, so that they don't have to deal with menstruation, which for a lot of trans men can be a very harmful emotional time for them. So this is all stuff that's done and practiced, but you don't do it on your own. And that was something that is a part of the conversation in the book. So it's not just about these are the things you can do. These it's these are the things should you do them? Should you not do them? But the other thing that really inspired me to do this is the idea that 
regardless of what happens with Roe, um, we are at a place where we have to decide, should abortion always be dependent upon right. an abortion clinic? Because whatever happens, and as you had said before, you've been in places where abortion has been mostly inaccessible. You've been even in some of the better, like I live in Minnesota, we have I think five abortion clinics right now were considered a pretty liberal state, but almost all of our abortion clinics are in the Twin Cities. So they're all right in the same location. Abortion clinics being the way that a person accesses an abortion is not going to be the way that people can keep accessing it in the future. So how are we going to bring that outside of clinics? Because even with Roe, it's the idea of being able to go to a clinic and get a safe legal abortion. Well, what happens when there are no longer clinics? Because that will happen regardless of whether there is or is not the right to illegal abortion in every state. This is a way of breaking it free from there. Um, it does seem like there's a such a frustrating lack of basic information on this issue, even in the framework of uh, legal clinical abortion. Um, for For instance, several of my friends who have had um, medication abortions were completely shocked that it was very painful. Um, they they were told yes. like cramping would be uh, you know alongside bleeding, but it felt like labor to them, including women who'd had children before. Um, so just the sort of lack of uh, communication and honesty and openness, even within the pro-choice community, I find deeply frustrating. I do as well. And it's one of the things that I am working really hard on making sure that the information is out there. It's not just how does abortion happen and how can a person access medications if they want to do their own care. But we have to be very, very open about what a medication mm -hmm. abortion is like. Um, biggest concern, the biggest danger of a medication abortion at this moment is not the physical danger. There, a medication abortion, whether you get it from a clinic or whether you purchase it from a place that has been vetted online and so you are aware that you are getting the medication that you are trying to get, is not a dangerous thing. What is dangerous about a medication abortion is twofold. One is the fact that people are afraid to go into a, a emergency care or see a provider or any sort of doctor should there be a complication because they are worried about potentially being prosecuted, and that is bad. Um, the other is that people who do go in may go in for what they think are complications, but is really just how the medication works because people aren't informed as to what it's going to do. If our biggest danger is the fact that people are going to go in for complications that aren't really complications and then say, by the way, I took this medication and then they end up in jail, that's a huge problem mm -hmm. for us in the movement. So we have to be very clear about this is what's going on. It is a labor. You are going to see a, a gestational sac. Um, it is going to take a while. You are going to vomit. Vomiting is normal because that is part of transition into labor. All of these things have to be very, very clear and we need to get that out as quickly and as broadly as possible. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Jane Network. Obviously, when um, that's the sort of um, touchstone for a lot of these conversations about go, how do we survive um, the uh, the overturning of the legality of abortion. Um, you know, uh, your your publisher, Seven Stories, um, sent me a copy alongside your book of uh, Our Nose Happening. 
um, which uh, is is her story of trying to obtain an abortion in the 1960s in France before it was legal there. Um, and the thing that I was uh, one of the things I was struck by the most was um, her asking everybody if they knew where she could get an abortion um, and, and just everyone being like, no, <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, you know, the the idea of solving this problem with these sort of clandestine networks is like, well, it's a clandestine network. So how how do we think about accessibility versus putting ourselves at risk? But also um, the fact that the Jane network was, as, as you pointed out in your book, mostly white women. Um, so how do we uh, make these things um, accessible outside of these sort of very white pro-choice uh, organizers. Um, yeah, I guess that's my question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is the question. I mean, quite frankly, because it's such a huge one. Um, there's there's not a really good answer to that right now, which is unfortunate because there, I would say that the best way that that existed was when aid access was opened. The, I mean, there was still obviously problems with the fact that you, a person could only obtain medication abortion by going onto a website, which not everybody's going to have access to a website. And then the idea of all of the information that had to be put into a website, but at least it was equal so all people could access it um right now we are heading into a situation where even with the best of intentions if a person says okay i'm going to have this medication and so feel free to contact me like how does that work how do you contact a person because the only people who can hold on to medication right now are people of privilege, which is going to be white people who aren't as worried about being arrested over this. And that's really complicated and hard. Um, one of the things that I have been recommending to people right now, and I will be honest, for the most part, even though I've been speaking at fundraisers that are for abortion funds and in the South, I'm still talking to predominantly white communities. And that's how it is, unfortunately. But I do recommend, especially online, but in these communities as well, that should a person find medication themselves, especially say going through plan B's or plan C's report card online. Um, there aren't a lot of options right now because thanks FDA, they've shut down almost everybody, but finding medication abortion from what we are seeing, the biggest issue is that it takes weeks mm -hmm. for that medication to come, it, th which is obviously not a good thing when we're talking about an abortion that is best done as early as possible, both for a person's mental health sake, but also because physically it's easier the earlier you do it. Um, and so I tell people that when we head forward, the best thing to do is the idea of operating as if medication abortion were kind of like emergency contraception. It's something that it would not hurt a person to have on hand and have in their house and have that in case they ever need it. And then should they not need it and somebody else that they know of in their own network says, oh, God, now I need it then it's immediately available. And then that person can go ahead and go ahead and purchase a new dose that would be basically the network dose, for lack of a better way of putting it. That's a sort of scenario that I can see happening right now. But again, it still pushes the idea that it's only primarily in the hands mm -hmm. of people of privilege. So if we could find ways from there to be able to access things like 
domestic violence shelters, um, free, free. God, it would be amazing if there was like a little free library of emergency contraception and plan B or and now I've done mm-hmm. it and now medication abortion. But obviously, that's not a thing that's going to happen right now. Um, but there are lots of places where a person could reach out in the community. And so perhaps even purchasing it and then reaching out to a local abortion fund and telling them that it was a thing that exists. Again, you get into all sorts of security issues and vetting issues. It's just so difficult right now. And I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. The government did this on purpose to make sure that it's hard and dangerous and scary. Mm-hmm. Um. So you you do have a section in your book about thinking big about uh, I think that one of the reasons why the pro-choice movement has has become the way it is, is because for the most part, you know, feminist communities um, and leaders have come out of places where abortion is still pretty accessible uh, in the on the coast, media centers and, and, and et cetera. Um, so the chance that this can spur real change, um, and I'm not going to be one of these people who's like, Trump is good for the revolution, but uh, the, the idea that we can uh, fight back against the slow erosion of, of accessibility and so on, and not just take things back to a status quo, um, but take things to a place of autonomy is um interesting to me um and so i appreciate your thinking big section on um pregnancy centers of, of where um it's not just abortion clinics it's pregnancy centers where all different forms of um of uh people's decisions can be catered to and yeah. etc um so can you just i mean well a how do you have optimism and think in that way when we're fighting on this level, but also be, um, what is, what is your vision for how things should be, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited about choices in Nashville, Tennessee is a really great example of how things can be in the future. And they are an all options birthing, birthing and reproductive health center. So they do abortion, they do prenatal care, they have a birthing center because these are all different parts of a person's life. Um, the same person will get pregnant and have an abortion as will get pregnant and give birth. It's just a different point in that person's life. Um, we need more places like that. We need more places. And that's how things used to be. I mean, when abortion began, it used to be in hospitals. It used to be a part of the general mainstream medical system. And it was this idea of then moving it off into their own clinics that were separate from the rest of the medical establishment that made it so vulnerable. And we need to bring that back. I love the idea of the All Options Pregnancy Center, which there's one in Indiana, in Bloomington, and they need to spread more because the biggest issue with pregnancy centers are when pregnancy centers are giving unbiased or are giving biased opinions. And rather than just listening to what a person, what are the issues that that person is facing? What are the choices that that person wants to make? And how can we best help that person make the choice that is what they genuinely want to do? There is 
in my opinion, like people are like, oh, you're a pro-abort. And they say that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. I am pro-abortion for any person who wants an abortion as soon as they want it without having to jump through rings or hoops in order to get it. But when a person wants to give birth, but is choosing an abortion because they feel like it's not something that they can do because they're not supported, that's horrible to me. I am just as adamantly pro-life in that case because I do not want any person to have an abortion because they feel like they have no other option. And when that happens, I mean, that's bad. That's bad in general, but also that's bad for our movement because that's how we get people who say, I regret my abortion and start passing laws where they are trying to make other people not have that choice as well. So more of these sort of things I'm hoping will continue that we'll see more of these all care reproductive health centers um, in states where there will still be abortion access and that we'll be able to find some sort of secular all options health pro, pro-choice um, reproductive pregnancy centers in places where there won't be abortion. But I also see a place where hopefully we will be able to obviously do telemed in order to access um, medication abortion so that it can be done easily and safely and privately. But also we're always going to need to have abortion clinics because there are people who are not going to want to have medication abortion and that's just fine as well. We just need to figure out how to get to a place where it's understood that Abortion isn't about whether doctors or whether it's in a clinic or any sort of political thing. It's just abortion is always a part of bodily autonomy. And when we can get that so that it's not we need a safe legal abortion in a clinic or we need a safe legal abortion in this state or and move it on to this is part of what being a person who can become pregnant is, is do they want to be pregnant? When do they want to be pregnant? How can we support them when they want to be pregnant? And how can we support them when they don't want to be pregnant? All of that should just be, in my dream world, a a simple, easy question that we ask every person, and it shouldn't be political. Mm-hmm. What do you think of um, these sort of uh, advocacy moments like shout your abortion and the, you know, ask me about my abortion t-shirts and, and that sort of side of the fight? I love them because they're very open and they really bring abortion out of this like shameful secret place. Um, I also know that they tend to speak a lot to the people who are already open, if that makes sense. And so because I spend so much time, I spend a lot of time with anti-abortion activists and they obviously how an anti-abortion activist feels about a movement like shout your abortion is not something that should ever really matter. But I, I understand in some ways their idea that abortion is something that to them you can't shout about because they see it as like reveling or um, not giving it the proper the proper depth and gravity that it should have. And so while I still completely and utterly support all of these ideas of abortion storytelling and all of that, I also have been finding myself trying to figure out how do we tell those stories to the people who are, who are less likely to be open to it, because that's going to be something that we have to really concentrate on as well. And I think that there's going to be a really huge opportunity to figure that out Unfortunately, once we do get to a point where abortion is illegal, because when abortion is illegal, the first thing that is going to happen is that people who are arrested for abortion are going to be painted as monsters. 
And we as a movement need to figure out how to tell their stories because that's what it's going to be. The only way that the right can make abortions stay illegal and especially jail people who have them is to turn these people into villains. And they aren't villains. They are people who are trying to access care just like everybody else is and people who don't have the resources to go out of a state in order to do that. That is the message that we have to share. And honestly, there's no group that I feel more firmly can do it than the abortion storytellers and the shout your abortion people, because they know, they know how to do it. They know because it's their story too. And it does seem like, uh, well, obviously your book has a lot of different uh, ideas of how somebody who is, um, feeling in despair about these issues can actually start to work and get involved. Um, but it, it is a huge project of um, helping women access these services. So can you, as, as we close down this conversation, just give like an overview of um, how somebody think, can think through um, how they can get involved in this without, you know, like going across the border and smuggling pills in their pants or whatever, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, you yeah. only go across the border and smuggle pills in your pants if you can manage it. Because <laughs> I believe everybody <laughs> should have some pills in their pants. No. Um, so, yeah, when it comes down to all of this, like, especially when there are these stories in the in the news right now about, okay, abortion is going to be illegal as of January 1st or everything that you're reading, there's a couple of steps to take. The first, obviously, is to figure out, I call it the... Um, putting on your putting on your oxygen mask before taking care of the person mm -hmm. next to you the airplane analogy so first things first is just to figure out are you a person who could potentially get pregnant and if so are is it would you want an abortion and if that is true then the first thing a person should do is figure out a game plan for is your state going to have legal abortion or not um do you know where your abortion clinic is do you know how much an abortion would cost and whether or not your insurance would cover it. Do you have the ability to get that money? So once you know that and have that set up in your head, that's when you can start moving on to, okay, what do I want to do to expand those rights for other people who might not be able to have access anymore? And the obviously, money is always going to be such an important issue. So I tell anybody who has any money to give, please give to a local abortion fund. Please, 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 please. Or pick a state that access is totally disappearing from and give even just $5 a month. I tell people if they can give $5 a month and do a monthly donation instead of a big chunk, um, it's less noticeable. But also abortion funds that know that they have money coming in regularly don't have to fundraise for that bit of money and it's so much more useful for them and so much more exponentially helpful um and then find out what is going on in your state because working locally is the most important thing that a person can do working on a national level is not as helpful because that then you're expecting all of the resources the hours the donations everything to trickle back down to the states that need them whereas if you donate directly with your time or your money then it's going to be so much more effective that way so i the first thing that a person can do if they're just trying to figure out how to get involved is i have a map up on posterohandbook.com and if you scroll down you'll see a us map on there you can click on 
on any state that you want, and that state will list all of the abortion clinics in that state, and then all of the reproductive justice clinics in that or clinics, reproductive justice groups in that state, all the political reproductive rights political groups, the abortion funds, the abortion practical support groups, and any other group that is doing work in that state. And so you can just click on anything and find contact information and get directly involved in your own neighborhood. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.